Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray, and I'll explain what's, what's happening here. God, we, we just sang uh, a line together that maybe we didn't think about. We sang, who can question any of your words? And Lord, the truth is we can't, but we do. And so often we think we know better or think we know different. Lord, would you humble us that we would listen to your words? We wouldn't question, but we would believe. And that we would therefore have a faith that is full of confidence in what your word says, and lives that are full of hope and joy in the life that your word brings, we pray. Amen. So I wonder if you ever feel like you could not cope with any more suffering. I wonder if you ever think that someone has hurt you so much and caused such pain in your life that you could never forgive them. I wonder if you ever feel like you have done such wrong that you could never forgive yourself. I wonder if you ever feel tormented and oppressed by demons or, or, or dark spiritual powers. I wonder if you feel like you don't really know if God is there, and if he is, I'm not sure what he's like. Or, or you doubt that God loves you, or that God accepts you. Or, or maybe you just feel dirty and, and defiled, and like your damaged goods, and can never be made whole. For some of us, some of those things won't just be passing things, they're things that we cannot escape. Those thoughts, those feelings. Well, listen, we're starting today a sermon series that if you relate to any of those things, this is for you. Because there is this single event that happened that addresses all of these deep issues. And we've been singing about it already. It's Jesus' death on the cross. It provides healing and hope. It provides wholeness and the ability for progress in these things. So, um, this is, oh, you're, that, my moment of surprise is gone. This is what the series is called. Um, Death by Love um, is, is what we're calling the, these uh, sermons over these next couple of months. How the cross of Christ changes lives. You see, the death of Jesus isn't just a thing that happened. It's something that happened with a motivation and with a purpose. There's meaning in it. And what we need to see is that it was love 
that took Jesus to the cross. It was love that took him to die. And it's an experience of his love at the cross that changes our lives, that changes all of our life. Now, now this might, it might be something of a surprise, because I think what we often do, uh, we don't think of the cross in these terms. Now, if, if you're a Christian, you've been around church, we know, don't we, that the cross is kind of, it's at the center, and, and we know it's how God saves us, and we kind of know it's, we need to tell other people that Jesus died on the cross. We kind of know it has that place of importance. But so often we kind of leave it there, and we kind of have this really thin and really quick understanding, and we kind of move on to other things. But what we need to do, and what we want to do in these next few months, is we want to go deeper into this event of the cross, into this death of Jesus. And we want to go deeper and see from God's word how, exactly how, and in so many different ways how that applies to our lives, how it addresses those deepest and those darkest and those most difficult and troublesome corners of our souls. Because it does. It really does. So we're going to be spending a couple of months focusing on the death of Jesus. But as, as we do that, and as we kind of, that's going to be the, what, what we're thinking about, I just want to say from the outset that we can't separate the death of Jesus from the rest of his life his birth and, and the life he lived and, and the things he said and did and then what happened after his death in his resurrection. And that's right, it's very important to remember the resurrection because we're looking back through the lens of time. We're looking back through the lens of the resurrection knowing that's what happened to his death. So as we understand and explore his death, we're always kind of, we won't be saying it all the time, but always remembering that he rose. And that makes a real difference because that gives us confidence in the things that God's word says about his death. Actually, this is true, and he can deliver on this. And this is really the heart of what the, the cross of Jesus is all about. It's atonement. Now, um, we're going to be looking at a load of big fancy words over the next few months, okay? And we t- in this church, we tend to try and shy away from using lots of big words, because often they're kind of, they can be confusing, and sometimes people just use them to try and look impressive for others, and we don't want to do that. But actually, these words are really important. So we are going to use these words, but we're also just going to see really carefully and clearly what they mean. We don't need to be put off or, or, or worry about it. What's more important is what they mean, right? It's not being able to use the words, but, but we do need to, to look at them. This, this is the first big word, and this is the heart, really, of, 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 of what happens at the cross. It's atonement. good way to remember it is at-one-ment. It's about how God, a perfect God, and imperfect people can be made one, can be made friends and reunited again. And that's what the cross of Jesus is all about. A perfect God and imperfect people being made one. It's a beautiful thing. But this atonement, this cross, is like a diamond. And when the light hits a diamond, it kind of refracts and it hits off in so many different ways. And you get all the colors and the sparkle and the beauty. And this atonement, this cross, is like a diamond. As we look at it, we see it sparkle and shine from different angles. And if you've got a good quality diamond, you can just look from so many different angles and see different things and appreciate the beauty of it. And so, if you like, each week we're going to take a different angle. And we're going to shine the light in and we're going to see what beautiful things come out. 
And, and often the things that we see will be simple in some ways. Yes, they've got big words, but actually they'll be simple things. You know, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of, kind of knew that. But I hope you will see how, how more deeply they penetrate and change our lives. And today we're going to start with, uh, with what is really at the heart of the atonement, the reality from which everything else flows. This is the thing that holds the whole piece together, okay? It's not the whole piece, but it holds the whole piece together. Uh, it's a bit like um, the hub in, in a wheel that all the spokes go into. Everything kind of comes out of this. Uh, and if you lose the, the hub from the wheel, the wheel just kind of, I don't know, it gets all deformed and it just stops working and, and, and you can't suck your bike, you, you're done. Well, so too for this. If we lose this at the heart, if we let go of this at the heart, then, quite frankly, nothing makes sense. The cross just kind of just doesn't have any power in our lives, actually, really. And we're going to think particularly today. I'll explain what it is in a moment. Oh, no, I've lost a the slide there. Okay, we're going to think. This is the title for today. It wasn't a slide. Uh, I doubt I am saved. Jesus is my substitute who took my penalty. I doubt I am saved. Jesus is my substitute who took my penalty. We'll come back to that in a moment. Firstly, let me introduce you to Stacy. Stacy is an ordinary Christian, okay? Um, bog standard ordinary Christian. But she doesn't feel like a very good Christian. So Stacy is regularly challenged by, say, the sermons at church. And, uh, and she sits there and she's like, yeah, I'm going to change. I'm going to do something differently. The, the preacher just said this, and, and I'm going to go and do that. But she never actually follows through when it comes to it. And she kind of just ends up in the same place again. Uh, and so she seems to be stuck in this kind of spiritual rut. She's got this patchy prayer life. She's not really sharing her faith with anyone. She finds it difficult committing to deep relationships in, in the church and, and, and kind of feels a bit isolated in, in the church. She never meets her own expectations, let alone God's. And so she doesn't particularly love herself. So it's quite hard for her to imagine how God could love her. She doesn't love herself. You know, she used to feel liberated by her faith. It used to be this thing that brought joy and life, and she felt free. But now she's got this kind of nagging guilt about these sins that she's committed, and God feels distant. And so you, she has that thing, you know, kind of as she's trying to go off to sleep at night. The thoughts just kind of run through her mind, and she can't stop them. Am I saved? Am I even a Christian? Maybe not, given how I'm performing, given, look at what my life's like. I don't know if you've ever doubted you're saved like Stacy. I certainly have. In fact, regularly I have that kind of experience, or something like it. I remember how I used to deal with it. I kind of figured that it wasn't quite working, like my faith hadn't worked in some way. I guess I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I wasn't genuine and I, I hadn't meant the things that I kind of prayed and said. Uh, maybe I've fallen out of favor of God. So I, I'd hear someone call people to, to, look, you've got to put your faith in Jesus and you've got to trust him. And, and, you know, people then kind of do this thing that's called the sinner's prayer where you kind of, the first prayer you say to God. And I would say, okay, I need to say that prayer again because maybe it didn't work last time and maybe this time it will work. So I would say that prayer again in the hope that this time something would change and be different. And something would be real. And it never really was. Well, listen, 
there's a different way to that to address your doubts. If, if that's kind of something like the place you might find yourself in, there's a different way to address those things. And it's through realizing and grabbing hold of this beautiful thing, this, this hub of the wheel, this thing that's at the heart of the atonement, the cross of Christ. And this is it, that Jesus, willing death in our place, took our punishment for sin. That Jesus willingly went and died to take the punishment that I deserved for my sin. The big fancy word this week is, is two words. Penal substitution. Penal substitution. But it's quite simple. It's two ideas. One is that penal, there's a penalty. There is a penalty that has to be paid for our sin. And the second idea is substitution, a substitute. Jesus in our place, for us, on our behalf, a substitute, paid the penalty, paid the price. It's relatively simple. And it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea when Jesus died. It didn't come from then. It's got a long history. It's a religious idea. It's from the kind of... um, the, the, the kind of ritual, uh, 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 ritual sacrifice and worship of God's people. So, so in the Bible, we won't turn to it, but in the uh, book of Leviticus, it establishes this, this system of, of animal sacrifice through certain rituals and festivals and, and times and days. And there was this system put in place. And, and at the heart of it was the shedding of blood of animals. And that was practiced in the tabernacle and in the temple. At the place where people went to meet with God were made at one with God. This sacrificial system. And it taught the people the reality of how an imperfect God can be one and can be friends with. Sorry, I said imperfect, didn't I? A perfect God. You should, someone should have shouted me down there. <laughs> A perfect God can be at one, can be friends with and imperfect people. It's through the sacrifice of an animal in the place of the people. Even more significantly, it, was in, uh, it, it wasn't a new idea. The very identity of God's people before Jesus came was rooted in this event that was based on the sacrificial death of a lamb in the place of the people. It's, the, it's what we know as the Exodus. You know the story of Moses bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and, and out of slavery. Well, that whole event was kind of unlocked and, and centered on the Passover where they slaughtered the lamb in the evening. And then as the angel of death came over, then death did not come to those households. So that is the, that's the backdrop that Jesus is born into. That's the backdrop Broadly, there's lots more texture to it that he comes and, and his death comes into. And that's what Jesus taps into when the night before he dies, we saw it in Mark a few months ago, sits down with his friends for the last supper, which is the Passover supper, the supper that they celebrate, that sacrificial lamb dying. And Jesus draws out all of that meaning and says, this is what my cross is. This is what my cross is. John the Baptist taps into it when he calls Jesus this. He says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the death of Jesus is no run-of-the-mill, ordinary Roman crucifixion. There were thousands of those in history, and we don't know about most of them for a reason. No, this is the Son of God dying in our place, taking our sin, 
taken the penalty for our sin. Now we're finally getting to our reading. It'd be great if you could turn back to the first reading on page 741, Isaiah chapter 53. Because what we have in this piece of poetry that was written 700 years before Jesus, on page 741, is, is this poem that beautifully captures the reality of this idea of penal substitution for us. And the first reality, it captures the idea that there is a penalty. There is a penalty. This is an unpopular idea. Perhaps you don't like this idea. Perhaps you kind of bristle as you hear it. Often that uh, happens for two reasons. Uh, people don't say uh, like what this says about us as people. We think we're better than that. We think that sounds a bit negative way to describe that the, 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 there's a penalty that we need to pay for our wrongdoing in some way. We think, sure, we're not perfect, but we're not that bad, are we? That's the first thing. The second thing we don't like about it is what it says about God. Because this points to a much greater and a much more perfect God than we like to think of. We don't like to think there might actually be a problem between me and God, that his perfection is actually a problem when I'm imperfect. We like to think, no, it's okay, it's not a big problem. God's okay with me. And so we put it together and we just think, well, this sounds a bit severe and serious. The, the, the penalty that has to be paid, which is death according to the Bible, can't we just chill out a bit and talk about grace and, and love and, and smile at people? Well, yes, we can talk about grace and love and hopefully we can smile at people, but listen to this. God's love and God's grace, they only make sense when we see the setting, when we see... Uh, uh, the, the setting in which they come. It's like the, um, it's like the clasp that holds the diamond in some ways. It's the backdrop on which the, the black backdrop on which the diamond shines. And even when we don't like the sound of things, we've got to say, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say? Who may question God's words? And this is how this poem describes us as people. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. It's there on page 742, verse 6. See, at first it sounds a bit funny. You think that's not a massive deal. You've got this cute little sheep kind of just wandering off away, you know, kind of independent-minded, going by itself, you know, just going over here, just having a wander, just checking out some new grass. You just think, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. It's okay. But just think about it, how stupid it is for a sheep to try and go it alone in the world. To just wander off, leave the shepherd behind and say, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to get out there, the world is my oyster. It's a sheep, a lone sheep will not last very long in the world, right? It's, it's, it's going to get caught in brambles, it's going to fall off a cliff edge, it's going to be a threat from a predator. It's only a matter of time for a, a lone sheep. It's a foolish decision to wander off away from the shepherds. And this is the picture for us. It's a foolish thing for us to deliberately choose to wander off from the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who wants to shepherd and protect and provide for us and care for us and protect us and lead us to good pasture and lead us to good water 
a good shepherd. And for us to think, you know what, thanks, but I'm going to try it alone. I'm going to wander off over here. This God who knows what is good for us, who knows what frees us and brings life, who knows how to protect us from those ravenous wolves that would come and attack us, who knows how to keep us away from the cliff edges. I don't, thanks, thanks, shepherd, I do not want you to interfere with my life, my sense of what is right and wrong, my sense of what is good and bad. Where I want to go, I will go. I'll figure it out myself. I'll turn my own way. I'm independent-minded, thank you. I'm going to be true to myself and follow my own heart. And it's like the children that grow up in a, in a good home, where they're loved and they're cared for and they're provided for. But they don't like being told to tidy their room or help with the dishes every now and then. So they figure out they're better off going alone in the world. You know, this seven-year-old child. I'm going to move out of home. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to break free from this oppressive regime here. My girls have said, you know, sometimes I've said, do, do you want to move out? <laughs> you go for it. It's a big problem. See, this is us substituting ourselves for God. It's putting ourselves in God's place, calling the shots, taking charge. But listen, as people, we are sheep, and we need a shepherd. We need a shepherd. Because when we go it alone, and when we go out, and when we reject God and turn away, it leads to pain, and it leads to suffering. In fact, in in this poem here, it's described as iniquity. This is just this kind of great moral wrongdoing, this unfair behavior. It's also described as transgression. That is law-breaking. I feel like it's breaking some some moral laws of the universe that God has put in place. See, it's a problem. The, The other thing that this poem reveals to us is some home truths about God as well. You see, he's a God of justice. And so he does what is right and he deals with evil in his world. So that's why in these verses, a serious punishment is described. We read about being pierced and crushed and wounded. Now, we might not like the thought of God punishing in that way, but let me ask you this, what is the alternative? A God who just turns his blind eye to evil, just sweeps it under the carpet, any injustice, any wrong, just turns his blind eye, just lets it go. Do you really want a God like that? Do you really want a God like that for the evils that have been done against you? He says, it doesn't matter. Turn a blind eye to it. No, we know, we know that that would not be a good thing. We know that justice is good. We cry out for justice, don't we? We cry out for evil to be dealt with and sin to be gone. We might not realise it, but that's what our hearts long for. You know, even... Stupid example. Game of football. There's a foul in the penalty area. We, there's got to be a penalty, hasn't there? And if there isn't, you'll hear fans talk about it and harp on and on and on. I was in the stadium with 60,000 fans last night who were harping on about how it wasn't a penalty. I thought it was. But, you know, it's a big thing. That's a game. It's just a game of football. 
What about in society? What about if we lived in a society where there were no consequences for breaking the law, no consequences for serious moral failure? It was just all let go. We've seen that sometimes in societies, and it is horrible. Evil off the leash. It's not a good thing. You might say, well, surely if God was good, then he would just forgive us without any punishment, because that's what he asks us to do after all, doesn't he? He wants us to forgive one another. Well, listen, the only reason that God asks us to forgive freely without dishing out our own punishment and our own justice is this, because God does see that justice is done. Because God does judge all wrongdoing, because he does punish it. It frees us to not be those who go around punishing, judging, throwing out justice. It frees us to forgive because we entrust ourselves to him who judges perfectly. See, we know justice needs to be done and we know in our hearts that it involves punishing wrong. I think there's this sense in humans that we know that. Why do we deny God the right to that? Why do we deny him the right to that? God's moral law in the world is not just some set of arbitrary rules and standards that he's just going to be like, oh yeah, I like the sound of these. This is what people are going to live by. No, they are the overflow of his very character and his very goodness. They reveal God to us in some way. The how, uh, his, his law, if you like, uh, the revelation of, of how we are to live in light of him. It's the way to know freedom and life. It's the way to safety. It's the way to be close to the shepherd and find good pasture for ourselves. It's, it's the way to fullness of life in this world. And us saying no thank you and wandering off and turning away from that, the Bible consistently promises from the beginning to the end that the penalty of that is death. That only leads to death and not to life. See, there is a penalty that you and I owe. Every single one of us. But here's the beautiful, here's the beautiful and amazing thing. The big word isn't just penal today. It's penal substitution. And here's the thing. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has paid it all. You see, this poem in Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus' death on the cross. And this is what it says. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was our punishment that was on him. It was our iniquity that was laid on him. You see, it's our wrongs, it's our wandering away, but it is his death, and it is him taking the punishment. That is what it means for him to be a substitute. It's like we've kind of tagged him in to go and take that for us. Taking these things in our place. You know that stinking feeling you get when you've done something wrong and you realize there's a consequence for it, right? Um... For me, quite often happens, I'm returning to my car and I'm like, is there going to be a parking ticket on there? 
I kind of know I've maybe bent the rules or, you know, I'm a few minutes late or something. And it's just that you're kind of coming around the corner about to see the car. Oh, is there going to be that big yellow thing of doom? Like, ah. And sometimes you kind of think you see it and it's like a leaf and you, your heart sinks, but it's a leaf, so it's okay. Um, you, you, you know that feeling, don't you? That's totally lost my place, sorry. But, yeah, so there's, there's that. But then what about more serious? You've done something wrong and you're going to lose your job. Or, or you, you've made such a mistake that you're, you're losing your family. Your marriage is over. Or, or you're facing jail time for something you've done. And, and that sinking feeling, uh, and you're overwhelmed with just, I don't know, just pain and sadness and regret. But then the complete relief that someone else has paid the fine, or, or taken a hit for you, or whatever else, and actually you don't have to pay it, you're free. It's gone. It's done. You see, it's not that your sin does not matter. It's not that you don't need to worry about it in any way. But as Peter describes, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so we no longer bear it. He's taken it. He's paid it. You see, this... But Isaiah describes there's no tragic accident, it's no mistake, it's no just kind of chance events. No, it's a plan with its source in the very loving purposes of God himself before the world was created. To pay the debt that you owe. We see that God is active here. We read that God is, uh, is God that punished this, the, Jesus dying. It says that the Lord laid on him our iniquities. In actual fact, you can look down at verse 10 just after our reading and it talks about it's God's will that his life would be an offering for sin. But also, Jesus isn't just some kind of helpless bystander. He's clearly up for it as well. We started our reading in verse 4. He's active and deliberate. He took up our pain. He, he bore our sufferings. There's, he's not passive here. He, he, he's active and taking it up. See, this is Jesus taking the penalty, taking the punishment, the death penalty for us, and bearing it, taking it on his body, in his person. And then the Bible says that is a sacrifice that has happened once for all. That's why, talked about the kind of animal sacrifices earlier, that's why we don't need to do them anymore, they've stopped, because they pointed to that one sacrifice, and he has done it. So do you know what that means? You and I can stop trying to pay God back. We can stop trying to pay off some kind of debt that we owe to him through whatever means we might try to do that. Because the penalty has been paid. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. It is once for all. It is signed off. And so what this means for us, you see in verse 5 in that poem, brings us peace. It's atonement, isn't it? Peace with God. Brings us healing. That relationship that we had given up on by wandering away from God, well now it's restored. Those wounds that are self-inflicted by us wandering away from the Good Shepherd, by our own foolish choices and our decisions, well they're being healed up and they are healed up in the cross. The beautiful thing about this restoration is it's so great and it's so complete. It's as if if we never turned away. 
as if we were always at home and we never faced the pain and the suffering and the heartache of turning away. That's why we had that, that second reading. And uh, I've got it on the screen, so I know, you know you might not be able to, to get there earlier, but this is the second reading that Teresa uh, gave us. It's what a guy called Martin Luther calls the great exchange. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That so that is really important, right? Jesus became sin. He took our sin. He paid the penalty, which means that God can make us so that we can become the very perfection of God, the very goodness of God, the righteousness of God, because he took our penalty, because he paid it all. For us Christians, we can become, and we are indeed, the very perfection of God's. He hasn't just cleared our debts, if you like. But what he has done is he has totally filled our account up to kind of, I don't know, infinity. You can never go into debt again if you're a Christian. Do you realize that? You can never go into debt again. Yeah? So listen, what does this mean for Stacy? What does this mean for you? See, when, when we're beset by those doubts, when we see our sin again and it just doesn't seem to go away, even though we've been on the real change course and that was going to change us and it hasn't quite, at all, we just don't meet our own expectations and we doubt whether we're saved. We're kind of, God loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And we go through those cycles and, you know, you know that feeling, right? Well, listen, your sin and your weakness never defeats, never undoes the work of the cross. It's a beautifully liberating thing. It helps me a lot. Jesus outed me as a sinner 2,000 years ago. So that's not news to anyone else here. I know it's not news to you anyway, but it's not news. And it shouldn't be news to me because sometimes we are surprised. Oh, I do sin. Caught me off guard. Well, no, he had to go and die to pay the penalty for it. Of course I do. Don't be surprised or embarrassed. Do fight it. But remaining sin, what it does is it reminds me of my ongoing need for Jesus. It reminds me that today I need this cross. I need a substitute in my place to pay for me. And praise God, I know I have one who has paid for me. It's dealt with. I can face up to it. Listen, in the the nicest possible way, it's not all about you. I think I'd want to say that to Stacey. It's not about your performance. It's not about your ability to change yourself that kind of gets your relationship with God or or keeps your relationship with God. And so yourself is not a place to look for confidence or peace when you're trying to fight off those thoughts as you go to sleep. Don't turn to yourself. No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his perfect life and his death in your place. It's all the fact that he was and is your substitute who paid your penalty. That is an event in history. It happens. Hold on to it. Believe it. You can't undo or change that. It secures your forgiveness that you can't lose. So it's not about you, but it is for you, and it is for me. 
And it is to be taken hold of by faith. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet to, uh, for this, then today is the day to do that. Because if you haven't asked him to be your substitute and he's not, and you do face the penalty that we spoke about earlier before God for all your wrongdoing. It is for you and it is for me. And it's for each day where I see those new sins and those new struggles to believe again and apply again this beautiful truth, and this beautiful reality. To reject the lies of Satan and say, no, Jesus died for me. He took the penalty. Yes, I am that bad. But yes, he does love me that much. And so as I continue to battle with doubt, I cling on to, and hopefully even grow in this kind of brash and this confident faith, Yeah, but Jesus has done it. Yeah, but he's paid it. Yes, my sins are many. But in Jesus, God's mercy is more. And the price is paid and it's done. Let's pray before we sing. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you have paid the penalty one that we could have spent eternity trying to pay ourselves and never paid it off, but you came in your perfect life and your perfect death. There's our only hope for being made one with God. There's our only hope for dealing with the doubts that plague us. It's our only hope in the face of our ongoing struggle with sin. We praise you that you have provided for us. Please give us the faith. Please give us the faith to believe and the joy and the hope and the life that comes from believing. We pray. Amen.